Welcome to B2B Marketing Needs Don Draper, brought to you by True. For too long, B2B has lacked creativity and inspiration, leading to alarming declines in effectiveness and marketing departments being slowly devalued more and more within their organizations. We're here to change that by getting under the skin of what it really means to be a highly effective B2B marketer. We'll be speaking to some of the brightest minds in the industry to discuss what they're doing to be a bit more, well, Don Draper. And now, here's your host, Stuart Black. Joining us today on B2B Needs Don Draper is Nikki Stenson, a senior global marketing leader who has led marketing functions at Oracle, McAfee, and Tibco. For Nikki, it's all about relationships, whether working with sales teams, suppliers, partners, or colleagues. Success for her has come through continuous and highly effective collaboration. Nikki believes B2B marketing is not human enough right now and is passionate about changing that. So Nikki Stenson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Stu. Great to be here. So first off, what does being a bit more Don Draper mean to you? So the funny, my, my sense of humor piece, say smoking and drinking at work and being able to sleep on my couch in my office, obviously nobody <laughs> does that. Um, I think, you know, when you think about Don Draper, he was kind of the master of his own destiny, wasn't he? So mm. just able to be creative. He kind of didn't have a filter, did he? If he thought something, he said it. Um I think it's interesting to be able to to talk about what you're thinking. You know, obviously you need to have a filter, but being able to be more creative and just have that flow. Right. And and you mentioned on our our first call that that you like to be as direct as possible. That's obviously served you well over your career. Yes, not always. But yeah, you know, I'm a Zimbabwean, so we're known for being direct. I think it's how you come across. That's where emotional intelligence comes into it. So yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And we're going to get into all of that. But just just sticking on Mad Men for, for one more second, uh, during our call before, you mentioned that you associated more with the character of Peggy rather than Don. She started as a secretary and rose the ranks uh, to become creative director. Can you tell us why you connect with her? Yeah. So, you know, you look at Peggy, she comes in, she's the secretary in the corner. Um, I started my career out doing admin. Uh, my first role with an Oracle at the end of 1998, was coming in as a marketing assistant doing admin. And I've kind of risen through the ranks of my career. So I look at her, mm. and I, I do, I definitely relate more to her based on her journey in, in that program. Absolutely. And one of the things that the, the program deals with is imposter syndrome, both Don Draper and Peggy in certain ways. Is that common in our profession? Absolutely. So my husband's in sales and we were chatting about it last night. I said, you know, <laughs> do, do men also suffer from an imposter syndrome? He was like, hell yeah. You know, I think what's interesting is when I was younger, you're kind of in awe of people and you go, wow, that person's so clever. Wow. You know, you watch them operate. Mm. And as I've moved through my career and gotten older, you actually realize that a lot of people have a script that they stick to in terms of things they say, uh, mannerisms, behaviors, and it's like their method. And, and they go they go back to that. So yeah, I think imposter syndrome does exist. Uh, and my advice to anyone is you believe in yourself. You know, just just draw from within yourself and know that you have the ability from within yourself to do anything you want to do. 
I think it's really important. And and to not be intimidated by people in, in rooms that you go into. We're all human at the end of the day. So really important to remember that. It's hard sometimes when you're stressed, though. Absolutely. I, I was going to say, easier said than done, but uh, good advice, I think, for sure. Um, so let's go right back to the beginning then. What attracted you to marketing right in the first place, and how has your career developed over the years? What were the big milestones? Yeah, so it's interesting. When I was at school, my mum took me to uh, one of those career days, you know, where they they analyse you, you do tons of tests, and and it turned out that I would be good to go into either PR or marketing. Mm-hmm. And you know, back in back in the day in Zimbabwe, there were a lot of agencies. You know, some really solid ad agencies, some good agencies that focused on marketing. So, you know, I looked at what they did. I chatted to people, and my first job actually when I was nineteen was selling advertising for a small newspaper called The Village Voice, and. The guy who owned it, I can't remember his surname, which is terrible. I think that's an that's an age thing. Um, his name was Alan. He is actually the Zimbabwean version of Don Draper. He literally had a cigarette in his hand constantly. Um, and he was the editor. And he employed me with no experience. And I had to go in. I had no salary. I made all my money from selling advertising. So I'd go in, this 19-year-old girl, green as they come, into kind of boardrooms to pitch the village voice for them to advertise in. And it was a real baptism of fire because, you know, I didn't Mm. really know what I was doing, but I kind of learned on the job and I learned from Alan. So that was kind of my first foray into the world of advertising, media, marketing. So I think that that's what got me started to think, yeah, this is something I'd really like to be part of. And, And I've never looked back. And then, and then, fast forwarding to where we are now. After a career working with with some huge corporate brands, you've decided to do something a little bit different. Um, take a break and pursue a more creative direction. Um, can you sort of give us a hint about what that looks like and what brought you to this point? Yeah. So you know, I've spent over twenty years working in big tech. I've loved it. Uh, I kind of fell into it almost by accident. You know, people say, oh, was there a plan? I said, no, I I got a temp role at Oracle and it was the beginning for me way back in 98 when I first kind of moved to England. I think moving forwards, yeah, what do I want to be doing? Good question. Um, Looking at various options, I'm still talking to some really big brands at the moment in terms of, of some marketing leadership roles. So I'm not... I'm not kind of canceling that out, but I'm also looking at other things I could be doing, you know, writing, being more creative, doing pro bono work, supporting organizations who maybe can't afford to pay for a senior marketing person, but working to assist them with my skill. So I'm still thinking about it. So mm. it's it's really exciting, actually. And, you, you know, you ask what brought me here. Um, I think... It's interesting, as you get older, especially for me, you kind of start looking at what your priorities are and what you want to be doing. Four years ago, I was sick. I had breast cancer. Um, I'm well now, thank God. Thank God, yeah. Sorry to hear that you went through that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was very dark for me. Um, I lost my mom to cancer when she was 50, um, came from nowhere. So 
for me, when they diagnosed me, I was like, oh, my God, mm. I'm going to have to tell my children, like my mom told me, that I might die. And that really changes you as a person. I went through some very, very dark times. You know, 2019 was probably one of the worst years of my life. Um, and I came back to work. Oracle were incredible to me. I, they just went, get well, Nikki, get well. Um, and... You know, I came back, I've spent a few more good years, I've had a couple of roles in, in Oracle, and I've sort of looked at it and gone, okay, what do I want to do next? So, you know, I'm thinking about it still, but it's exciting. I, you know, I feel I feel like, oh, you know, what's next? It's it's quite a cool place to be. Well, it, may, it makes perfect sense after your illness that you want to take a, a hiatus. But do you think it's important that people generally take breathers just to make sure that they're going in the right direction and doing what they want. Uh, how important do you think that is? Massively important. You know, I've worked, I've worked since I was, you know, 16, you know, after school jobs and then moving to the UK and just working solidly um, through my 20s, 30s, 40s and never really breathing, raising two children, having a career, having a fairly big career raising two kids. And it's interesting, I've got two sons that 23 and nearly 20. And I've often had that kind of guilty feeling thinking, oh, was I a bad mum because I was also working? And I've asked them, I've said, you know, was I a good mum to you? And they're like, mum, you taught us how to like raise a family, cook a great meal, and you can also have a career. So I, I think, you know, there's a lot of pressure on, on men and women in the world to kind of be brilliant in everything and to never breathe. And, you know, if you breathe, there's something wrong. You know, I think, yeah, I look at I look at kind of mental health and, and I'm happy to see that the world takes mental health more seriously. There used to be such a stigma around mental health. You know, I, 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 there still is to a certain extent, but I think people are changing how they view it. Mental health is so important. You know, if you broke your leg, your, your boss wouldn't say, right, get into work and start, you know, walking around. And of course not. They'd say, take time, heal, get well. And I think it's the same for your brain. Mm -hmm, absolutely. You know, burnout is real. And I think being able to step back and go, this doesn't make me weak or a failure or, or any of those negative connotations that come with going, I need to stop. I think it's really important and, you know, I think we need to support one another and be aware of in the workplace, if you can see that someone's struggling to go, hey, are you okay? You know, I, I don't think it's unfair to go, I'm not okay. I think it takes a, a massive amount of strength to do that. So, yeah, it's important. Yeah, and hopefully, as you say, the culture is developing in a way that uh, makes that just much more normal. So we're only 10 minutes into this interview and you've already brought a tear to my eye talking about your family there. So we should start talking about something a little bit less emotional. Let's talk about creativity, um, something that B2B is not always uh, known for. What's been the most creative work of your career? What are you most proud of? Oh, good question. There's been a couple of things. Um, I think when I was at McAfee, you know, McAfee is known for being one of the gorillas in, in the security market, right? And back then, I'm trying to think when it was, 2012, 2013, I think it was 2013, uh, we pulled out of InfoSecurity. InfoSecurity is 
one of the biggest security events, right? And I remember going to my management team and saying, I don't know if we should do this event this year. And everyone was like, oh, my God, you know, career-limiting move. And it was a big risk. And, you know, I did all the numbers. I looked at, looked at all the results that we'd had over the years. And I said, you know what? I want to do some more guerrilla star marketing. So we still had a presence at InfoSec, but it was slightly different. What I did was I worked with all of our channel partners, of which we had many, and I created an I Heart McAfee campaign, which was a little bit cheesy, you know, a bit tongue-in-cheek. And I got all of our partners to have these huge, we had these huge badges made with I Heart McAfee on them. And we created a social campaign around it, and I worked with, with certain partners and said, hey, would you have these on your stand with little iHeart McAfee bags with some goodies inside? Uh, and then we ran the social campaign saying to people attending, you know, tweet your iHeart McAfee badge, you know, w- with a funny caption and get a chance to win tickets to a concert or an event. And it was extraordinary. We we blew Twitter up. It was it was different. You know, we had press and analysts talking about it. Um, it just, it was something different. And I remember another big security firm also pulled out that year. And uh, I can't I can't actually remember which one it was. I have a feeling it was semantic. We may need to check that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember there was only one piece of press around it saying, this year we're not going to see the two gorillas of security heading off each other at InfoSec. And to me, that was positive because we were making a statement without it being negative. And people were like, well, why aren't you at InfoSec? And it was like, well, actually, we want to do more things with our partners. We want to do more work with our customers. We want to take our marketing budget and, and do more innovative things, work more with the channel. So it was a really positive um, marketing campaign, very risky, you know, I put myself on the line. I, you know, our team put ourselves on the line. Um, but I think sometimes you have to step out there and take a risk to be successful. Sometimes you fail, but I think that's how you learn. Yeah. So that was probably one of the coolest and exciting. Absolutely. And as you say, creativity, risk, bravery, all these things go hand in in, in hand. And uh it's great when it works, maybe not so great when it doesn't, but you have to you have to go through the errors to get to the successes. And then on the flip side, what kind of work has been a real grind for you over the years? What side of marketing has been uh, a bit soul crushing? Oh, numbers. So, <laughs> and I know that's 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 a bad thing to say as a marketeer. <laughs> let me let me give you some context around that. I have I have a neurodiversity challenge called dyscalculia. Okay. I only discovered it in my 40s that I had it. Um, I literally couldn't do maths growing up. It was it was bad. I had a teacher at school who told me, when you die, I think we should donate your brain to the University of Zimbabwe and they can use it as a doorstop, <laughs> which you can imagine was a little bit soul-destroying. Um, <laughs> I laugh about it now, but... You know, it was hard. I just couldn't grasp it. And, you know, back then you had teachers who'd shout at you and tell you were stupid. Mm. Uh, so over over the years I was like, well, 
I'm just really crap at maths. That must mean I'm stupid. So I've always struggled with numbers. But I actually realized I have this, I have this neurodiverse challenge, right? Mm-hmm. And I used to hide it away. I used to get really nervous. But now I tell my sales leadership, I tell my marketing leadership, I tell my leadership, this is my challenge. Um, I have to really spend time looking at the numbers and getting under the numbers covers, right? Because numbers are important. To be a good marketeer, you have to be a numbers-driven marketeer. So that's been a real learning for me and also been kinder to myself to go, this is a challenge I have, but it doesn't make me any less capable of doing a good job. I just have to do things differently. And sometimes I have to ask for help. I remember reaching out to um, a chap called John Ford. He's retired now, but he he looked after our neurodiverse network in Oracle. And I wrote to him one day and went, I'm freaking out because I've got to present. And, you know, I haven't told anyone. And he was so amazing to me. He just said, Nikki, just breathe. Don't stress, mm. you know. This is this is your hidden disability. Just ask for help. And, you know, so I did that. And actually being open with people, I got so much support. So I think the numbers piece has always been a challenge for me. Um, but actually I've turned it to my advantage now because I go to someone who I know is really good with numbers and I'm like, hey, this is the challenge I have. Can you help me work this out so that I can present this back to the business in a way that, is easy for me to break it down into bite-sized chunks and also deliver something that sales leadership will go, okay, we see that you're actually making a difference to the business. So, yeah, kind of a long-winded answer. No, no, that's a great a great answer. And um, again, so positive in terms of just putting your hand up and, and saying to people what's going on and, and, and get, surrounding yourself with a team that can make up for your shortcomings. And that's what it's all about, really, isn't it? Making sure we all work together and um, hit all those points. Um, and uh, going back to creativity then, outside of your own projects that you've worked on, can you give us an example of a creative B2B campaign that's really knocked your socks off? Yeah, so I had to think about it. So going back to 2014, Slack, I don't know if anyone remembers this, they did like a mockumentary video campaign um, in the style of The Office. Uh, you know, <laughs> and I used to work in Slough, so, you know, The Office has a kind of warm place in my heart. Who doesn't love David Brent? Um, <laughs> and they did this B2B marketing campaign uh, called So Yeah, We Used Slack. And it was just kind of talking about how, you could use Slack and, you know, what it meant in a business across the different elements. And, you know, that's that, that's nearly 10 years ago now. And you look at Slack today, well, I've got some numbers here, um, over 10 million daily users, um, mm. nearly 80% of the Fortune 100 use Slack. So such a cool campaign and worked really well and successful. So I think if I was to call any kind of B2B campaign out, it would be that one. Really cool. And and what do you think we can learn from uh, that success? There's obviously humor in there and um, connecting back to to a, a property that everybody knows. But what do you think made that, made that so powerful and has stuck with you? I think the human element, right? Just, right. just kind of poking fun at fun at yourself. You know, I think people want to feel that connection. They want to feel like you understand that underneath all of the bravado and, and, and yeah, you know, that we're all human 
And I think when you can connect with someone from a from a humor perspective, it just breaks that ice. It, it makes people feel comfortable. You know, as they say, laughter is the best medicine, right? So. Mm-hmm. But again, it's a slightly risky prospect um, creating something that might be come across as a bit nerdy rather than sort of super slick. Um, so they've been brave to actually embrace that direction. Yeah, they have. But, you know, for me, I don't think super slick is always the way to go. Mm. Is everybody in life super slick? I'm certainly not. I'm just looking at my hair here. Needs a jolly good brush. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I think nerdy's cool. You know, I've I've got two sons. Um, one of them has Asperger's. I know he won't mind me talking about this. You know, he, he, my kids weren't super cool. I certainly wasn't super cool growing up in life. And I think that's half the problem. I think... Often, and, and this just, you know, this isn't B2B, it's B2C also. It's like, what image are we projecting? This image of perfection, this image of, you know, you you too can achieve this greatness. Well, well who defines what greatness or, or, or being perfect is? I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think there is a, there's one answer there. And I think, I think we need to change that because everybody is different. Absolutely. And I think that's where the whole neurodiverse piece comes into it. The diversity inclusion piece comes into it. Everyone is different. And everyone's version of normal is not your version of normal. And I've had to learn that also, you know. So, yeah, I think that's why it appealed to me. That's a great perspective. Being real, being human, being authentic, it, it, it's a tonic in times when everybody is trying so hard to be, uh, you know, super polished and shiny. Yeah. Moving on to sales, um, you've worked closely with them uh, all throughout your career, uh, very sales-focused businesses. Um, what can B2B marketers learn about how to be successful in a sales-focused model versus a more marketing-led one? Yeah, good question. So for me, you know, and obviously I can only talk to my personal experience. You know, there's there's always been this kind of battle between sales and marketing. And I think for me as a marketeer, as a successful marketeer, it's about really understanding sales and what drives them. I'm married to sales guys, so I think I can understand what makes them tick. Obviously, they're all different, but at the end of the day, they have a number they have to hit. And it's that binary. You don't hit your number, you get fired. You know, it's that simple. And, you know, working with sales, I tend to approach it in terms of how can I add value to what you're trying to do? You know, how can marketing and sales work well together to ensure success for the business? Right. What you know? What are your objectives? What are your KPIs? Here are my objectives and my KPIs, and how can they meet in the middle and 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 bring some 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 success? Yeah, I think it's really important. And get to know your sales teams. Get in front of them. You know, uh, recently I spent six weeks in North America, getting to know my sales team with an oracle. Right. To, to look them in the eye and say, okay, this is me, I'm Nikki Stenson, I'm here to drive your marketing for the region. How can we work together better? What do you need from me? This is what I need from you. Uh, so real communication relationship, right? It's, it's, it's pretty simple for me. Uh, and as you mentioned in our pre-interview, emotional intelligence is your superpower. You, you, you enjoy talking to people, you enjoy 
getting to know them. Uh, has it ever been a struggle trying to talk with the marketing department or senior execs convincing them that a marketing idea is is really a sales-focused idea? Yeah, I think, you know, it's about being able to put your ideas across in a succinct and understandable way. Not everyone thinks the same way. So it's about saying, this is what I think we should be doing and this is what I believe we'll achieve and putting numbers against it. So every marketing dollar you spend, you need to be able to say, right, these are the numbers that I'm I'm predicting that we're going to hit. You don't always hit those, but it's good to be able to have that measurement in place to begin with. And then take sales leadership or marketing leadership on a journey in terms of how you think and how you feel that program or campaign or initiative is going to run. So make it come alive for them. Mm-hmm. I think if people feel that they're part of something, they're going to buy into it. And I guess just um, half the battle is opening the door and making that initial contact, that communication that you mentioned. A lot of people might might be just too intimidated to open that door. But for you, that's that's the key to it. Absolutely. You know, and going back to imposter syndrome and feeling like you're not being taken seriously, that will happen. You know, people will look at you and they will judge you. Mm -hmm. But I think it's about having self-belief and going, you know, I believe in this. You might fail, right? I'd like to see anyone who tells me they don't have battle scars. You know, I, mm-hmm. I was interviewed by a really good sales leader years ago who said to me, I want people on my team who've got scars, who've got battle scars, because it shows that they tried something. They may have failed, but they got back up. And I think it's really important to remember that. You're going to fall down. You're going to fail. You've got to get back up and go, okay, next. It's really important. That's great advice. And pulling back a little bit to to just look uh, a bit more panoramically, you said uh, before that you think B2B is not human enough. Some might argue the big corporates are partly to blame for that, and you've seen that culture from the inside out. So what do you think the problem is really all about, and how do you think we fix it? Yeah, I think sometimes it's easy to go oh, big corporates or, yeah, at the end of the day, big corporates are there, they're, they're, they're driving business, they're, you know, they're driving revenue number, right? So it's about maybe trying to be more creative. You can often get stuck in process. You know, a lot of businesses have a lot of process. They have to. It's it's part of, of the business. However, I think as marketeers, it's about stepping back and going, okay, what can I do here that's that's different? How can I make this more human? You know, how would I feel as a person? I, I always try and put myself in the shoes of the customer and, and go, how would I feel if X, Y, Z was coming my way? How would I respond? How, how do I want to be sold to or marketed to? Um, and I work that way. And then I work with my sales teams and say, okay, how do you talk to your customer? What matters when you're in that process? Uh, What do you want to see from a marketing perspective? How can I make it more interesting? So again, it's, it's about that human piece. It's about communicating that back and forth, you know, uh, working out ideas with, with people, lots of people in the room to kind of, to, to kind of bash those ideas out. Obviously, 
you don't want to be running decisions by committee because then that becomes challenging. And I've done that before, which is hard. You need to be able to make decisions. But I think it's about just stepping back and going, okay, let, let's try and think about how we've done, how, you know, we've always done things this way. Does that mean that they, that's the right way? What do the numbers tell us? What are our customers telling us? So I think that's really important. And another thing you mentioned before, which ties into this, is that you, you've always enjoyed and uh, made a priority of working with young people and interns in your in your different roles. What have you learned from them and why do you think it's important to, to keep in touch with the people, the, the fresh blood that's coming into companies? Yeah, so for me, when I, you know, when I was coming up as a young person, if I worked with someone who actually listened to what I had to say, it it made me feel like I mattered, right? <laughs> I think young people really matter. Their voice is powerful, right? I look at my sons and they're coming up the next couple of generations and they've got some really interesting stuff to say. They see the world very differently to the way I see the world. And it's funny, often I sit at the dinner table with my kids and I think, oh, I sound like my mother, you know, in terms <laughs> of my opinions or my views. And I think being able to work with young people and listen to what they have to say. You know, they use technology very differently from how we use technology. I mean, I I remember when I worked at Village Voice, you know, the job I, I had back when I was 19, the internet was just being born back then. Mm. It, it was so different to how we operate now. Uh, I remember being in the States in 1992 and I think it was AT&T was talking about how we'd be able to do a video call. You know, hello. I mean, <laughs> think about how we live now. You you lose this, your life's over. Mm. So I think talking to young people, they, they, they just have a different way of looking at things. And, and it's interesting and exciting. And by the way, you're not always going to agree, right? But I think that's healthy. I think we can learn a lot from, from the younger generation. And you know, working with interns, we had a great intern program at Oracle, and I was honored to be able to mentor interns and, and work with them on my team and coach them and just learn from them. And it, it, I think it's enriched my career and enriched me as a person. And I would take interns into meetings with me and I'd ask them to work on presentations with me. And, and I just think it brings a different perspective. So, you know, it's something that I definitely want to continue doing in my career. I think it's really important. Absolutely. And then if we can rewind, as you were saying, when you started uh, uh, Village Voice, what, who, who were your mentors then or, or, or later as your career developed? Uh, and what important lessons did you learn that maybe you can pass on to people starting now? I have quite a few, probably too many to mention. You know, a, a, a couple of names. Lucy Brown was my first boss at Oracle. She gave me a chance. I did not have any formal marketing education. I didn't go to university. My parents couldn't afford it in Zimbabwe. But she saw something in me and she was like, you're really good at this. I want you to do it. And she, we're still friends today. Uh, she's actually retired from business. Uh, I still talk to her about stuff. I phone her. I'm like, hey, 
can I run an idea past you? I want to see what you think. She she was always kind of, she's always been that anchor for me. Um, really good friend now and just an amazing person to work with. So, so clever. And someone who actually, she was really different in how she approached stuff. She taught me a ton about emotional intelligence. You know, back then when it was kind of the suited and booted era in big tech, she was... She was, she was often the smartest person in the room. She didn't say a lot. She didn't have to. Um, so, you know, if I'm going to shout out to someone, it's probably going to be Lucy. Fair enough. Uh, and then sort of the second part of that question, uh, any advice for people, young people starting out in B2B marketing now? How can they build uh, a really strong, distinctive personal brand? Yeah, good question. Um, believe in yourself. You know, surround yourself with people who are going to speak into your life, you know, whether it's from a personal perspective or a professional perspective. Um, understand what your what your strengths are and also your weaknesses and, and build on those. You know, for example, for me, my weakness was numbers, right? So I got people in my life who could help me with that. You know, I learned right. ways to cope and to work out how to to face challenges when they came. So, you know, for me, it's quite simple. It's about self-belief. And the interesting thing is today, I think young people, and I might be wrong, I think they have a lot more self-belief than we did. Uh, you know, I look at my sons and their friends, and, and, and they're not afraid of saying, hey, I need to be heard. My opinion matters. You know, I grew up with the whole children should be seen and not heard kind of ethos. Mm. Whereas I think today... You know, you, you you look at people who are speaking out and 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 having their voices heard. A lot of young people out there, and and I love that. You know, my my both my sons are very opinionated. I don't know where they got that from. Um, <laughs> and sometimes it's not it's not easy because we don't always agree on stuff. And we've had a few stand up rows in our house because we're all quite fiery. Um, but they're opinionated, and I like that. And I think it's an important thing to have. You also need to be teachable. So have an opinion, but also remember that, you know, with that opinion, you have to back it up, right? Mm. And you also have to learn. So it's important to, we have one mouth, we have two ears, right? So listen, listen, a, listen, listen. So, that's that's yeah. a great way of putting it. I love that. Um, finally then, uh, sort of coming full circle, the future for you is wide open. What would be the ideal next step for you? I don't know, earning a billion dollars and being able <laughs> to work two hours a day. <laughs> when you figure that out, let me, let me know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. You know, I think for me is being able to work more with customers. Customers are the lifeblood of your business, Right understanding their voice, listening to their voice, being able to interact with them and build your programs around the customer voice and the customer journey is really important. So I think my next gig is something around that, you know, customer marketing, uh, customer advocacy, really key. Uh, so yeah, watch the space, right? Fantastic. And then more generally, just to finish off, B2B marketing itself, if we gaze into the crystal ball, what do you think the shape of the industry is going to be like in five years' time? Or what would you like to see it become? 
It's interesting. I think B2B is becoming a lot more like B2C, more human, um, more emotional, tapping into that emotional intelligence piece. Uh, definitely numbers driven. You know, uh, over the years, marketing has become more and more numbers driven, which is really important. Analyzing that data, you know, why are you losing customers? How can you fix that? How can you get more customers? What channels are you going to utilize? Analyzing everything all the time is really important. And being able to step back when you've run something and go, okay, why didn't that work? How do we make it better? How do we connect with our customers better? You know, what's missing? Uh, I, I think that's where we're going, right? Very much numbers driven, very much analytics driven, right? That's that's what I see. And I can't let you go without um, very quickly uh, giving you the rapid fire quiz that we always uh, end the podcast with. So uh, I'm going to throw some options at you. Uh, I just want you to respond with your gut. Don't think too hard. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay, number one, advertising or ABM? ABM, always. Logic or magic? Magic. (laughs) (laughs) Brand building or lead generation? Lead generation. And what's the problem with B2B right now? Not human enough. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Good one. And uh, if Don Draper were here or, or possibly Peggy, how would they fix the problem? They'd surround themselves with some really smart people and just hammer it out in a room, probably with a drink and a cigarette. Um, I don't smoke, (laughs) by the way. Um, Yeah. It sounds very civilised. I'm I'm sure we could all um, uh, get on board with that. And then then, uh, finally, if you could tell all CEOs to read one book, what would it be? Oh, definitely The Art of War, right? Mm, Brilliant book. Okay, good one. I've given copies to my kids. Don't know if they've read them, but great. Just really important. Great stuff. Uh, and then just to just to wrap things up, do you have a favourite Don Draper moment that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, so I don't know which episode it came from, and I wrote it down here. People will show you who they are, but we ignore it because we want them to be who we want them to be. You know, I think... We often have these preconceived ideas, don't we? People will show you who they are. Listen, right? Uh, fantastic. I think I think you've really shown us who you are as well today. So I'm just going to say thanks so much, Nikki Stenson, for a wonderful chat. Really enjoyed talking to you today. Oh, thanks, Stu. It's been great. Uh, and see the rest of you next time on B2B Needs Don Draper. Mm-hmm.